0: It's a question we've all had to ask ourselves at one point or another. What's the best way to catch a pleasant, fun-loving serial killer grandma on the loose in Florida? On April 9th, 2018, after the manager of the Marina Village Hotel in Snug Harbor, Florida, found a decomposing body in the bathroom of room 404, Lee County officers began their usual procedure for investigation. They questioned guests at the hotel and the ex-husband and friends of the victim, a middle-aged car saleswoman named Pam Hutchinson. Some of the information they gathered was useful, but ultimately, one category of evidence broke the case. You see, Hutchinson had clearly been dead for at least a few days. But on April 6th, Three days prior, she'd managed to withdraw $5,000 from a bank and book another hotel 130 miles away. Once there, she'd ordered room service twice. On April 7th, she made three $500 withdrawals from an ATM, then used the money at a casino in Louisiana, a thousand miles away from the bathroom where her body was decomposing at the very same time. She actually won at that casino, $1,500 off a $5 bet. The woman who collected that prize handed the casino teller a driver's license and a social security card belonging to Louise Reese. Like a big messed-up game of Where's Waldo, the Lee County Police were able to trace where Louise Reese, posing as Pam Hutchinson, had been at every step of her getaway. It was easy, because her withdrawals and purchases were a trail of breadcrumbs. Hi, I'm Ryan Levy. Welcome to Cyberism's Malicious Life. The story of Louise Ries. The beloved small-town grandma who murdered her husband and one stranger isn't one you hear every day. But the crucial mistake that led to her capture is rooted in a fundamental oversight that most people make. Most people just don't realize how much personal information is stored in their financial transactions. You know who really understood that? Andy Warhol not the first person you'd have guessed. Beginning in 1976, every morning at around 9 a.m., Warhol would recount all the things he'd purchased the day prior over the phone to his secretary. At first, it was a way to keep track of itemized deductions for tax purposes. Soon, though, he got into the habit of recounting what he'd done that day through these transactions. What began as a payment ledger turned into a diary, which later became a best-selling book and then a Netflix series. You don't think about it, but just look at your credit card statement from last Monday. The coffee you got in the morning, lunch, errands, a new t-shirt. You hardly remember dropping $120 at that bar, but your credit card company sure does. For Louise Reese, Andy Warhol, You and Me, What We Buy tells a story about our lives. That story is, of course, maintained by powerful financial institutions. And it's sometimes being accessed by the government. In the wake of 9-11, for example, U.S. law enforcement began to test the Fourth Amendment rule against unreasonable searches and seizures by secretly spying on Americans' credit card purchases. The term for it was hot watch orders, and the stated goal was to combat terrorism. But it's unclear whether hot watch orders ever totally went away. As recently as 2015, attorneys on behalf of the American Bar Association complained how, quote, the danger with blindly complying with hot watch orders is that they have questionable legal authority, and compliance may set a dangerous precedent for more frequent abuse of law enforcement tools to easily obtain private financial information. End quote. These days, you're most likely to find data brokers profiteering off your financial history without your knowledge. Retailers, your credit card provider, credit agencies, and all kinds of middlemen can trade what they know about you, like a giant incestuous game of hot potato. Years before our digital dystopia actually came to pass, a man named David Chaum became the first person to really materially grapple with the problem of privacy in money. David Chaum is amazing. That's Jacob Goldstein, co-creator of NPR's Planet Money, host of a great new show called What's Your Problem, and author of Money, the true story of a made-up thing, which inspired
1: today's episode. So he is, he is a cryptographer, also a kind of hippie-esque, you know, had a VW bus, hung out in Berkeley. Chom didn't start off
0: thinking about money. He was a computer scientist who first made his name by predicting, before the rest of us, just how difficult it would be to find privacy online, even in the most ordinary of circumstances. Just imagine, for a moment, that I'm Nate Nelson's internet service provider. We can say, right off the bat, that I shouldn't be able to read the content of what he's up to online. His appointment with his doctor, his pharmacy order for butt rash cream, and his Google searches for butt rash getting worse even after cream are his business. But even the kind of information you might imagine I have about what IP addresses he's visited and when reveals a whole lot of information. A proctologist's website, cbs.com, WebMD, and so on, gives me an indication of the weird issues he has going on. Chaum called it the traffic analysis problem. In general, how could any two parties expect to communicate over a network hosted by a third without that third being able to peer inside? He sat with this for a while, until one day, as he recalled to the BBC, the answer suddenly came to him. Quote, I was driving from Berkeley to Santa Barbara along the coastline in my VW camper van and out of nowhere, beautiful scenery, I was just driving along and it occurred to me just how to solve this problem I've been trying to solve for a long time. Yeah, it was a kind of, you know, eureka moment. I felt like, hey, this is it, end quote. In simple terms, Chaum took the kind of encryption we use for messages and applied it to entire networks, encrypting the very facts of who is talking to whom and when. His invention, the mixed network, would go on to inspire Tor. But before that, he started practically applying his idea first to electronic mail, then electronic finance. To anyone else, money wouldn't have seemed an obvious use case for encryption technology. For 2,600 years, privacy
1: wasn't even a property it held. One of the amazing things about buying things with cash, with paper money, is no third party has to know. I give you the money, you give me the thing, we're done with the deal, and that's it, and nobody has to know.
0: We still use cash, and it's still anonymous. But right around the 80s, financial transactions started to occur through computers as well. Therefore, like internet queries and emails, they were subject to Chalm's
1: traffic analysis problem. He sees technology developing, and what he realizes is that uh, we are entering into a world that he calls the dossier society, where basically everything we do is going to be tracked, including buying stuff, right?
0: It wasn't simply a matter of evil Orwellian corporations and governments prying in on our private lives. This futuristic dossier society, Charm recognized, needed to be tracked. Criminals will always exist, and they'll always look for weaknesses in the financial system to steal, swindle and launder money. Nobody wants that. But how do you prevent that without closely monitoring transactions? The obvious solution for organizations, Chaum wrote, is to devise more pervasive, efficient, and interlinked computerized record-keeping systems. In essence, we'd have to give up on security for privacy, or more likely, privacy for security. In three papers, published in 1983, 1985, and 1988, Chaum gradually outlined how cryptography could be applied to fix the privacy-security trade-offs
1: of networked payments. A few years later, in the 90s, there is this mania, slightly too strong a word, but there is a tremendous excitement about this idea of digital money. And you see it in all the ways you would expect to see it now. You know, articles in the New York Times Magazine and Wired Magazine. And then Sham goes out and starts a company called Digicash,
0: DigiCash, the culmination of years of research, a cryptographically protected payments network you could use with
1: what amounts to a debit card. A card you get from your bank that has uh, money on it, and you can use it at a store.
0: Simple, right? But when he founded the company in 1989, it was hardly a given that internet-based payments could work. Even years later, following the first DigiCash transaction, Chaum proudly proclaimed how with his system, quote, you can pay for access to a database by software or a newsletter by email, play a computer game over the net, receive $5 owed you by a friend, or just order a pizza. The possibilities are truly unlimited.
1: You can use it wherever you want to buy stuff. But the key thing is he sets up this cryptographic system where the bank can validate for the merchant that you have the money on your card to to make the purchase without knowing what you're buying. All it took was some public-private key cryptography,
0: blind signatures that generated verifiable yet private purchases.
1: It's very clever and subtle and not intuitive that you could do that, right? That the bank could could say, yes, Jacob has $8 on his card. Merchant, you can go ahead and process this transaction. You'll get your $8. But the bank does not know what I'm buying, where I'm buying, who I'm buying it from. Digicash
0: threatened the omniscience of financial institutions. You'd imagine then that those institutions would have worked to reclaim that power by
1: making DigiCash go away. In fact, they did the opposite. So if the banks see the digital world coming, they know they have been at kind of the center of money for hundreds of years. If you're a savvy bank, you you say to yourself, well, I want to stay in the game, right? If digital money is the way things are going, I want to be the trusted intermediary for digital money.
0: After a year and a half, DigiCash was partnering with banks on four continents, in the US, Australia, Japan, Switzerland, and Germany. Representatives of Citibank, one of the very largest banks in America, met personally with David Chalm in order to learn from him. In the years that followed, they built their own electronic monetary system, featuring their very own digital currency the federal government took an interest in the prototype testing it for several years behind closed doors in one instance officials used city's digital money to purchase tens of thousands of dell computers in others they used it to collect taxes from a tobacco company in total these city e-money transactions equaled around 350 million dollars this was clearly the future but not if Timothy May had anything to say about it. The attack surface has never been larger or more diverse, yet defenders are still forced to piece together intelligence from numerous siloed solutions that produce a flood of alerts in order to detect and end complex malicious operations. No more. Defenders can now leverage AI-driven cyberism XDR powered by Google Chronicle to predict, understand and end sophisticated attacks with the only solution on the market that delivers planetary-scale protection that allows them to predict attacker behavior through a revolutionary, operation-centric detection and response approach. CyberISIN and Google Cloud are dedicated to teaming with defenders to end cyber attacks from endpoints to the enterprise to everywhere. Learn more about CyberEason XDR, powered by Google Chronicle at CyberAison.com/slash platform/xdr. If David Chalm is the hippie godfather of digital currencies, Timothy May is its crazy uncle. May was extreme in just about every way. He wasn't just smart. For example, he was a savant. There's a story his sister told the New York Times about how years ago he was accepted to Mensa, an organization for individuals who score in the 98th percentile or above in IQ tests. After attending some Mensa meetings, he concluded that its members were a, quote, bunch of dummies who weren't worth his time. In general, May didn't vibe so well with broader society. He would write violently online about the U.S. government. He found taxes offensive. He opposed democracy for empowering the, quote, clueless 95%. At only 34 years old, May retired from his job as a senior scientist at Intel to live a reclusive life on the beaches of Santa Cruz, California. He spent his days with his cat Nietzsche, walking on the beach and reading technical journals, philosophy and science fiction books, and then, one day, David Cham's paper on private digital money.
1: And it's like, it's like a revelation to him. Timothy actually passed away a few years ago, but I I talked to him when I was working on the book. And he told me, you know, he he read the paper and he just thought, this is it, right? This is the future. I'm reading about it right now. Jacob
0: sums it up best in his book. Quote, as an engineer, a libertarian and sci-fi fan, he grasped the technical details, the personal stakes and the potential for profound social transformation. Indeed, his vision went even further than Charles. So May did what you do when you've just discovered the thing that's going to change the world and you don't have a job and you're living alone with a cat named Nietzsche.
1: He wrote a manifesto. He calls it the crypto-anarchist manifesto. And, um, you know, he's going big. I mean, it's a little bit playful, but he's swinging for the fences.
0: A specter is haunting the modern world, May wrote. The specter of crypto-anarchy. Computer technology is on the verge of providing the ability for individuals and groups to communicate and interact with each other in a totally
1: anonymous manner. Benny says these developments will alter completely. The nature of government regulation, the ability to tax and control economic interactions. The state will, of course, try to slow or halt the spread of this technology, citing national security concerns, use of the technology by drug dealers and tax evaders, and fears of societal disintegration. Many of these concerns will be valid. Crypto anarchy will allow national secrets to be traded freely and will allow illicit and stolen materials to be traded. But these will not halt the spread of crypto-anarchy.
0: At a chaum hosted cryptography event in 1988, May, big-bearded, not always so friendly, milled around handing out copies of his manifesto. Few people paused to take an interest, but that day May laid the seeds for a movement that would one day change money forever.
1: So there is actually this moment, this one gathering in 1992 at the house of a a mathematician named Eric Hughes.
0: Hughes had been working with David Chaum in the Netherlands. He hadn't yet bought furniture for his new Oakland home, so his visitors, predominantly grown-ass men, had to sit around on the floor. Still, there was an energy in the room. Timothy May opened the event with a reading of his now four-years-old manifesto to rousing support. Then the group played a cryptography game and ordered Thai food for dinner. Some crashed on the floor for the night. One of the attendees at the meeting, Judy Miller, was a journalist. As a writer, she had a hunch that crypto-anarchists was a title that would scare people away from the movement. And so she comes up with the name Cypherpunks. The name stuck. Chalm's colleague, Yuze, summarized the movement in, of course, a manifesto, a Cypherpunks manifesto. We are defending our privacy with cryptography, with anonymous mail forwarding systems, with digital signatures, and with electronic money. If the name Cypherpunks sounds familiar... That's probably because we already mentioned the group in an earlier episode we did about Cicada 3301, the mysterious internet puzzle that some people think might have been created by one of its members.
1: The bigger dream is, what if we could have digital money without a trusted intermediary?
0: Chaum had some nice ideas in the 80s, but Digicash was a corporation. Citibank is an anarchist's nightmare. The cypherpunks wanted more.
1: What if there is just some technical system, some code basically, that allows for digital money without an intermediary?
0: They envisioned what you might call a purely peer-to-peer version of electronic cash that would allow online payments to be sent directly from one party to another without going through a financial institution.
1: And that, for fairly obvious reasons, I think, is super hard, right? Like, if there's not some central intermediary, who decides how you create money? Who decides who gets money? How do you know who has how much money? Who validates me paying you? What if you just lie? What if I have a piece of money and I try and use the same piece of money to buy two different things? Like, there's a million ways that that shouldn't work.
0: After five years, one cyberpunk adjacent researcher named Adam Beck made the first breakthrough. Beck wasn't even working on the money problem. His research focused on email spam.
1: If you're old enough to remember the 90s, you remember that email spam was actually a huge problem then. There just wasn't the kind of AI filters that we have today. And so, you know, you're very excited about email, and then suddenly, like, 90% of the things in your email box are just trying to sell you fake Viagra, right? He comes up with this idea that he calls hashcash in order to fight email spam. And the basic idea behind hashcash is if you want to send an email... Your computer has to do a little bit of computational work, right? Not a lot, but a little bit. And it has to do it in a way that is a little bit of work to solve. And then once it's solved, it's really easy for another computer to verify uh, that it has been solved.
0: The technical term for this is proof
1: of work. So what does that mean? It means you can't create an email address and send 10 million emails a day because your computer just couldn't do that much computational work to send each email by
0: the same logic just as easily as it could prevent a computer from producing endless numbers of spam emails hashcash could prevent a computer from producing endless sums of digital money in a theoretical system for digital payments users could be required to dedicate computational work to earning money to ensure fairness. Hashcash wasn't a monetary system unto itself. It wasn't even really for money, but it did solve one problem. It was one step, one infinity stone. Something to build on.
1: Another person in this community who knows about Adam Back's work, about Hashcash. This is a-, a coder. His name is Wei Dai. Wei Dai was just 21 or
0: 22 years old in 1998 when he came up with what's arguably the most unintuitive idea to ever grace digital money. To grasp it, first consider what a bank basically exists
1: for. So what is my bank account? If I have $1,000 in the checking account, it doesn't mean that there's a pile of 1000 you know, one dollar bills in a vault at the bank, all it means is the bank keeps a list and it says my name, Jacob Goldstein, and next to my name, it says I have $1,000 in my checking account. And then if I want to send $100 to you, my bank minuses $100 next to my name. Suddenly I have $900 in my account, tells your bank to add $100 next to your name. Suddenly you have $100 more next to your name on your bank's list in your checking account.
0: Without banks, how could you possibly make up for this essential function? Dai's idea wasn't to get rid of it, but rather to invert it, like an inside-out socket.
1: We won't have a central intermediary keep a ledger. We'll have everybody in the system keep a ledger.
0: A decentralized ledger. Instead of a bank, everybody, collectively, would ensure the legitimacy of transactions.
1: So... Everybody will know how much money everybody has at all times.
0: Dai called his system B-money. But he knew, even before posting about it online, that it was practically impossible.
1: He says, like, look, sure, we could have everybody keep a ledger all the time but you know then everybody has to be online all the time why would anybody do that it's a lot of work and there's also the problem of how you get this new digital money out to people in the first place and he has a few ideas about that but they don't quite land so if you think about uh, adam backs hashcash and Eyes b money they're creating these these building blocks but they know that they're not all the way there yet
0: David Chaum's DigiCash, where we left it, had everything going in its favor. All the major news outlets and some of the biggest names in technology and finance, including Tim Berners-Lee, founder of the Internet, and Alan Grinspan, chairman of the Federal Reserve, were taking up digital money. Small, medium, and giant banks alike were interested in or fully testing DigiCash for themselves. Rumor had it that Microsoft offered millions of dollars to buy out DigiCash, but Chaum turned them down. But then, in the mid-90s, it was time for people to actually start using DigiCash. In his book, Jacob describes what happened next. Quote, Despite what ordinary people said when you asked them about privacy, we're for it, people's actions revealed they didn't really care all that much about privacy. As people started buying stuff online, they didn't bother with private digital cash. Instead, they used their credit cards, eminently traceable, completely not secret, subject to significant fees. Also, profoundly convenient. End quote. A contemporaneous article from The Economist summed it up by writing, quote, Electronic money has thus turned out to be a solution in search of a problem." End quote. In 1998, just 3 years after its launch, DigiCash Incorporated filed for bankruptcy. Every other digital money system failed too. For all their hard work, for all their interesting ideas and technical achievements, the cypherpunks still struggled to develop anything worth using. Even a decade after B-Money, a decade and a half since that meeting on the floor of Eric Hughes' house, all their collective genius had spun not one functional system for private digital payments. On online forums, a new generation of cypherpunks experimented with proof-of-work and decentralized ledgers, proposing funky workarounds with varying degrees of merit to them. until, in August of 2008, Wei Day received an email from a stranger. I was very interested to read your B-Money page, the message read. I'm getting ready to release a paper that expands on your ideas into a complete working system. The anonymous sender attached a draft of their paper to the email. They titled it Electronic Cash Without a Trusted Third Party. Two months later, they published it online, with an updated title, Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. It for this episode. A big thank you to Jacob Goldstein. I'm a huge fan of Planet Money. In his new podcast, What's Your Problem? Entrepreneurs and engineers talk about the future they're trying to build and the problems they have to solve to get there. You can find Jacob's new show wherever you listen to Malicious Life. Over on Twitter, we asked you now that Internet Explorer has gone the way of the dodo. What is your first Internet Explorer memory? Brian from Canada wrote, quote, opening up my shared family computer and trying to figure out which of the 14 search bars was the one I wanted and which gave us a virus, end quote. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. It was awful. Jason Grace from Denver, Colorado, recalls, quote, being forced to make it work for all of the employees of a local government agency, and hating it with all of my being." End quote. Yeah, I can relate to that, too. Elif posted a funny GIF from Rick and Morty about IE being basically a downloader for Chrome. The Computrix posted a link to a little-known Microsoft commercial for IE from 1997 that was pulled out shortly after being aired, when they discovered that the Latin lyrics of the background music they chose for the spot actually talk about sending the damned to hell, which, when you think about it, is oddly quite accurate for an ad about IE. Charlie James from Tallinn, Estonia, recalls a funny story. Quote, Had an argument with my friend who came by with a floppy and tried to copy the IE shortcut to have some internet at his computer. I did not win the argument, and the friend wasn't able to browse the internet at his computer. And lastly, DreamEater recalls using IE to learn how sex works in a Yahoo pool chatroom. Well, DreamEater, it could have been worse if you tried asking in Yahoo Answers. Also, shout-outs go to HelloTweetyNYC, Iceman of Oz, and Will von Sextron from Dublin, whose questions we've answered on the live Ask Us Anything event. V2DK, Mike M., Daniel Carisati from Nashville, Tennessee, and Barry Pittman, a pirate at large. Thank you for saying nice things about us on Twitter, guys. Thank you. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. This episode was produced by Nate Nelson. Yotam Halachmi did the sound design, and Adas Drucker manages our social media. Our website is malicious.life, and you can follow us on Twitter at, at @maliciouslife or me at Ran Levy. that's R-A-N-L-E-V-I. Thanks to Cyber Reason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye.
1: Oh my God. TK music. TK music.